Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, December 2nd, and Sunday, December 3rd, 2023. Uh, let's get into it. There are a few anniversaries. On December 2nd, 1805, at the Battle of Austerlitz, Napoleon won what was arguably his greatest victory against a larger Russian-Austrian army. The Allies suffered 36,000 dead, wounded, captured, compared with only 9,000 for the French. The French victory was so complete that not only did it end the War of the Third Coalition, it allowed Napoleon to create the Confederation of the Rhine among the German states that had become French clients, and thereby brought an end to the Holy Roman Empire, which Emperor Francis II was then forced to dissolve. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire had, of course, been in existence continuously since 1962 and traced its origins all the way back to Charlemagne's coronation as Emperor of the Romans in the year 800. On December 2nd, 1942, Enrico Fermi and his team created the first self-sustaining nuclear reaction at Chicago Pile 1, a rudimentary reactor built under the campus of the University of Chicago. This was the first milestone achievement for the Manhattan Project in its race to build a nuclear bomb before Nazi Germany. On December 3rd, 1971, the Pakistani military undertook preemptive airstrikes against several Indian military installations, beginning the Indo-Pakistani War of 1971, which was itself the final phase of the Bangladesh Liberation War. India was preparing to enter the war on Bangladesh's side anyway, so when I say these strikes were preemptive, I am not using that term in the phony George W. Bush, hey, they might attack us someday, you never know, sense of the term. Uh, the war, to put it mildly, was a complete disaster for the Pakistanis, who were forced to surrender a scant 13 days days later, and had to give up their claims on East Pakistan, a.k.a. Bangladesh, while suffering around a third of their military killed, wounded, or captured. In one of Henry Kissinger's more notorious acts, the Nixon administration opted to support Pakistan, despite evidence of its armed forces having committed major atrocities against Bangladeshi civilians. Uh, and on December 3rd, 1984, a Union Carbide pesticide plant in Bhopal, India, spewed toxic methyl isocyanate gas overnight, resulting in the deaths of between 3,800 and 16,000 people and causing injury to at least 558,000 more. Uh, Union Carbide maintains that the leak was caused by deliberate sabotage, uh, though Indian courts subsequently found several officials at the plant guilty of negligence. The Bhopal disaster remains one of the worst industrial catastrophes in history, and its adverse effects are still being felt by people in that region to the present day. On to the news. In the Middle East and Israel-Palestine, the Israeli military was advancing on the southern Gazan city of Khan Yunus on Sunday with Hamas officials uh, and residents both reporting indications of nearby fighting and the IDF later confirming that it has sent ground forces into southern Gaza. The IDF has been ordering civilians to evacuate the eastern reaches of Khan Yunus and, of course, it's posted a helpful interactive map on its website that warns civilians of imminent danger, provided those civilians have reliable internet access and haven't lost their special IDF secret decoder rings. Uh, we covered this all on Friday. Uh, residents of Khan Yunus uh, will likely move further south to Rafah, though uh, the IDF is continuing to bomb that city as well, so it's not really safe either. Israeli officials say the IDF struck more than 400 targets over the weekend, and the official Gazan death toll has risen at last check to 15,523. The real death toll may be substantially higher, uh, given the likelihood uh, uh, that bodies have not yet been recovered, uh, of bodies under the rubble, rather, that have not yet been recovered, and the closure uh, of most of the hospitals that were handling casualties. 
Elsewhere, aid shipments into Gaza have resumed. The Palestinian Red Crescent Society says that 100 truckloads of aid entered the territory from Egypt on Saturday, and I believe the aim was to bring in a similar number of trucks on Sunday, though I haven't seen any information yet as to whether that was accomplished. The Biden administration says it is pressing Israel and Hamas to resume negotiations. This is per White House spokesman John Kirby uh, telling NBC on Wednesday, uh, but there's no indication that it's having any success. Uh, after the ceasefire collapsed on Friday, the Israeli government recalled its Mossad negotiators from Qatar, and for Hamas's part, the Islamist group's political wing has sworn off any future prisoner swaps, quote, until the war ends, end quote. The administration is continuing to send large quantities of ordnance to the IDF, including massive bunker buster bombs, so any claim that it is really pushing the Israeli government to negotiate a ceasefire or even demonstrate greater discernment in its bombardments really doesn't hold up terribly well. Uh, Israel Hayom, a newspaper, a news outlet, I, I don't even know if you can call them newspapers anymore, everything's online, but a news outlet in Israel, uh, it's Israel Today or Israel Hayom, is reporting that uh, what it says are key figures in the U.S. Congress have been shown the text of, again, I'm quoting here, a new initiative that would condition future U.S. aid to Egypt, Iraq, Turkey, and Yemen, all of which it identified as Arab states. They might want to have a talk with the Turks. Uh, on the willingness uh, of governments in those four states to enable the ethnic cleansing of Gaza by taking in refugees. Uh, that same outlet has also reported, and this time it was in Hebrew, uh, so there's a summary, I've linked a summary at The Intercept from Ryan Grimm, uh, that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has asked his Minister of Strategic Planning, Ron Dermer, to put together a plan to, quote, thin the population in Gaza to a minimum, end quote, and that is quite a euphemism. The Biden administration has rejected, of course, any forced and or permanent relocation of Gazan civilians, a point that Vice President Kamala Harris reiterated during her visit to the COP28 climate summit in Dubai over the weekend. But it could be sold on the idea of a quote-unquote voluntary, and I put that in quotes because in reality it would be anything but, uh, evacuation that is characterized as temporary, even if, you know, there's no real intention to ever let the evacuees return. The Guardian says that it's reporting has the UK Guardian says that it's reporting has confirmed the findings of that bombshell plus 972 magazine piece from a few days ago, which we covered in the newsletter, I think on Thursday, which reported that the IDF has been using an AI system called Habsora or Gospel to identify the gospel, uh, to identify targets under a process that's been likened to, and I'm quoting from both 972 magazine and the Guardian, a mass assassination factory. Uh, the system is producing targets faster than the IDF can attack them, including private homes where the likelihood of civilian casualties is high. Israeli officials are apparently insisting that the AI is programmed to minimize civilian risk, an assertion that cannot be squared with the high number of civilian casualties incurred so far in this conflict. Israeli settler mobs attacked two West Bank villages in separate incidents on Saturday, killing at least one Palestinian in one of those attacks. The human rights organization Yesh Din says it's cataloged some 225 settler attacks against Palestinians in the West Bank since October 7th, resulting in at least nine deaths. 
On a somewhat related note, one of the people killed in last Thursday's shooting in East Jerusalem turns out to have been an Israeli civilian who shot and killed the two Hamas attackers and then was mistakenly gunned down by Israeli soldiers. Video footage apparently shows the man disarming, kneeling, and opening his shirt to demonstrate to the soldiers that he was not a threat, but one of them killed him anyway. The incident has raised issues regarding the trigger happiness of Israeli security forces and the wisdom of the Israeli government's armed vigilante program, which in addition to risking Palestinian deaths, also risks more friendly fire shootings like this one, I should say, civilian Palestinian deaths. Uh, the Washington Post published a story this weekend about the hasty evacuation of a Nasser Children's Hospital in northern Gaza last month. Without going into some of the grislier details, the staff was forced to evacuate by the IDF and left behind four premature infants who likely would not have survived relocation. They say that Israeli officials told them the infants would be taken out in Red Cross ambulances, but apparently they were left to die and eventually decompose. Reporters discovered their remains during the ceasefire. Israeli officials insist that they never ordered a Nasser's evacuation and have questioned the veracity of the story, despite video evidence and a recording of a phone call that the IDF itself released, in which an Israeli official appears to acknowledge the need to rescue patients from the facility. The Red Cross says it never agreed to assist the evacuation and that conditions in northern Gaza would have made it impossible for its personnel to get to a Nasser to retrieve the infants. Uh, I mentioned the Nasser story because it strikes me as especially galling. Uh, I want to offer a little brief comment here because uh, I can imagine uh, people following this story and, and following every atrocity or allegation of atrocity. And in general, uh, I have tried in, in, this, in these newsletters not to get too focused or heavily focused uh, on those claims because I feel like there would be no space for anything else otherwise. Uh, I do hope that readers, or in this case listeners, I suppose, do, don't mistake that for apathy about any of these stories. And that goes all the way back to the atrocities that were committed uh, and some allegedly, uh, I suppose, committed by the Gazan militants on October 7th. Uh, I know there's been a lot of coverage recently about uh, evidence of sexual violence uh, in those attacks. And I... I'm not, it's not apathy. I feel like my role here uh, is to provide an overview. And for me, that means keeping some distance from specific events. And I'm sure that I don't do that consistently, uh, but that is my aim. So I just felt uh, it was important to say that. Uh, moving on to Syria, according to Iraq's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the Saturday morning Israeli missile attack in the vicinity of Damascus that we covered uh, in Friday night's newsletter killed at least two of its uh, its personnel uh, who were in Syria on what it called advisory missions. Uh, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights reported that the strikes killed two Syrians who were affiliated with Hezbollah, as well as two foreigners, presumably these IRGC members, while wounding five other people. Uh, in Yemen, Houthi rebels in northern Yemen fired a barrage of missiles and drones at ships in the Red Sea on Sunday. The group damaged three commercial ships and also fired at least three drones at the naval destroyer, the U.S. naval destroyer, USS Kearney, which shot the projectiles down. There's no indication of any casualties, and two of the vessels reported only minor damage. I'm unsure as to the status of the third. It would not be surprising uh, if the U.S. military were to retaliate against the Houthis in the near future, and there is a genuine risk that this could lead to a full-blown resumption of the Yemen war, though, of course, that would require Saudi Arabia's involvement. Uh, in Iraq, Prime Minister Mohammed Shia Sudani reportedly told the U.S. Secretary of State, Anthony, Anthony Blinken, during a phone conversation on Saturday that Baghdad 
does not appreciate the U.S. military carrying out attacks on Iraqi soil. Go figure. Uh, the U.S. attacked two Iraqi militia-linked targets on November 22nd, which was, of course, during our uh, Thanksgiving pause here at Foreign Exchanges, killing nine pro-Iran fighters, uh, according to AFP. And this was in retaliation, of course, for attacks against U.S. personnel. Uh, those attacks tapered off during the Gaza ceasefire. Uh, but as we know, that ceasefire is no longer operative. On Sunday, some enterprising party carried out a drone strike on a militia target in Iraq's Kirkuk province, killing at least five people and wounding five more. Uh, there was initially no indication as to responsibility, though one didn't exactly have to be Sherlock Holmes to solve this caper. But the U.S. military did later confirm that it was responsible and characterized the strike as preempting what it called an imminent threat. Moving on to Asia and Pakistan, unspecified gunmen attacked a bus in northern Pakistan's Gilgit-Baltistan region late Saturday, killing at least nine people and injuring at least 26 others. The bus driver was among those killed, along with the driver of a truck with which the bus collided. There's been no claim of responsibility here, and interestingly, the main body of the Pakistani Taliban has taken the rare step of denying any involvement. Uh, in the Philippines, a bombing targeting a Catholic mass killed at least four people and left several others wounded on the campus of Mindanao State University in the southern Philippine city of Marawi on Sunday. Islamic State claimed responsibility for the attack via telegram. The previous day, uh, the Philippine military said that its forces killed at least 11 jihadist militants in nearby Maguindanao province in an attack targeting, quote, suspected leaders and armed followers of the Daula Islamia, that is, of course, Islamic State, and the Bank Samoro Islamic Freedom Fighters, end quote, uh, to borrow the AP's verbiage. Uh, I don't know whether Sunday's bombing was planned in advance or was intended as a direct retaliation for Saturday's incident. On to Africa and Guinea-Bissau, the president of that country, Omaro Sissoko Mbalo, uh, characterized Thursday night's gun battle, which we covered in the newsletter uh, on Friday, between elements of the National Guard and his presidential palace battalion as a, quote, attempted coup, end quote, in comments to reporters on Saturday. Mbalo had been out of the country attending, to, uh, attending the COP28 summit when the incident took place and said it had delayed his return to Bissau. National Guard Commander Victor Chongo is now in government custody, but Mbalo appeared to suggest that there were other coup plotters behind Chongo and said that he would order an investigation into the incident on Monday. The National Guard is part of the Interior Ministry, which AFP says is quote-unquote dominated by the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and uh, Cape Verde, or PAICG. That party, which won June's parliamentary election and now controls the government, is opposed to Ambalo. So there's some interesting potential dynamics there. Uh, in Burkina Faso, the military governments of that country and Niger announced on Saturday that they are both withdrawing from the G5 Sahel Regional Counterinsurgency Force. That group was formed in 2014 with the aim of pooling resources to battle the various jihadist groups that were threatening Sahelian governments. It began deploying joint forces a couple of years later, but as you might have already concluded, uh, it's had minimal impact on the region's jihadist crisis. Uh, Mali's ruling junta uh, quit the force last year. So of the original five member states, only Mauritania and Nigeria still remain. 
In Ethiopia, officials in that country's Oromian regional government have accused the rebel Oromo Liberation Army of killing at least 36 civilians in attacks on three villages that took place on November 24th and 27th. The OLA apparently hasn't commented, and there's no confirmation of the government claim, but the alleged attacks took place not long after another round of peace talks between the OLA and Ethiopian government broke down, so it is conceivable that the group decided to lash out in that moment. The OLA was formed as the military wing of the Oromo Liberation Front in the 1970s, but broke away from the group's political leadership when it reached a peace accord with the Ethiopian government in 2018. It frequently attacks non-Oromo communities in Oromia, though authorities have only said that the victims of these attacks were Orthodox Christians without reference to ethnicity. On to Europe and Ukraine. Russian military operations in the eastern part of that country may have hit a couple of speed bumps over the weekend. For one thing, reports that emerged on Friday suggesting that the Russians had seized the town of Mariinka, which is southwest of the city of Donetsk, appeared to have been a bit premature. Ukrainian forces are reportedly still in control of some parts of the town, including a coking plant, though that may change in relatively short order, of course. Elsewhere, the Ukrainian military claimed on Saturday that Russian attacks on the city of Avdivka had completely ceased for a full day. That, too, could change in a hurry and indeed may already have changed by the time you hear this. Uh, but it suggests the Russians are at least regrouping or were at least regrouping after spending the previous several days in what seemed like intense fighting to try to take that city. Uh, and the Ukrainian government says it's investigating a claim that Russian soldiers summarily executed two surrendering Ukrainian military personnel. Details are minimal, but there's video of this alleged incident circulating on social media. Needless to say, intentionally killing surrendering soldiers is a war crime. In France, a knife-wielding attacker killed one German tourist and wounded two other people near Paris's Eiffel Tower late Saturday. The attacker is a French national who was on a French watch list. Uh, and had apparently pledged allegiance to Islamic State and was also, quote, known for having psychiatric disorders, according to Reuters. Uh, he cited the conflict in Gaza, uh, among other uh, proximate causes, to police after his arrest. On to the Americas in Brazil, where President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva said on Sunday that he has no intention of bringing Brazil into full membership in the OPEC Plus bloc and would stick to observer status only. This was one day after he somewhat incoherently told reporters that he wanted to join the group of major oil producing nations to try to encourage them to stop producing oil. Uh, OPEC Plus extended a membership offer, offer to Brazil on Thursday, which I gather has raised some eyebrows given Lula's stated uh, commitment to combating climate change. Uh, Brazil's state-owned oil company, Petrobras, is, of course, continuing to pursue new oil exploration, also despite Lula's climate change position, though he says his aim is to invest oil profits in non-fossil fuel energy alternatives and to encourage OPEC plus nations to do likewise. Oil remains the cause of and solution to all of humanity's problems. Uh, in Venezuela, voters, uh, at least the ones who participated, uh, voted overwhelmingly uh, in Sunday's referendum to support uh, their country's territorial claim on Western Guiana's Essequibo region. Uh, election officials said that the vote was 95% uh, in favor in all, for all of its uh, five clauses, the most contentious of which uh, was a question about whether or not to declare Essequibo a new Venezuelan state uh, and to extend citizenship to its residents, uh, 
although uh, there is admittedly not much insight as to turnout, uh, which may not have been terribly high. Uh, there's no indication that the Venezuelan government is planning any imminent steps to try to actualize its claim on Essequibo, but the referendum has nevertheless caused some consternation in Guyana and internationally. Finally, in the United States, uh, Akbar Shahid Ahmed from HuffPost offers some welcome reassurance that the worst Middle East expert in Washington is still central to the Biden administration's regional policy. And I'll just read you the intro to his piece. Four men in Washington shape America's policy in the Middle East. Three are obvious. President Joe Biden, Secretary of State Antony Blinken, and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. The fourth is less well-known despite his huge sway over the other three and despite his determination to keep championing policy that many see as fueling bloodshed in Gaza and beyond. His name is Brett McGurk. He's the White House coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa, and he's one of the most powerful people in U.S. national security. McGurk crafts the options that Biden considers on issues from negotiations with Israel to weapons sales for Saudi Arabia. He controls whether global affairs experts within the government, including more experienced staff at the Pentagon and the State Department, can have any impact. And he decides which outside voices have access to White House decision-making conversations. His knack for increasing his influence is the envy of other Beltway operators, and he has a clear vision of how he thinks American interests should be advanced regarding human rights concerns as secondary at best, according to current and former colleagues and close observers. Uh, and this is me again. Indeed, even though McGurk has spent nearly 20 years giving bad advice about the Middle East to a succession of U.S. presidents, and even though his fixation on Saudi-Israeli normalization at Palestinian expense may have helped trigger the October 7th attacks, his influence today appears to be greater than it's ever been. I'm sure that makes us, all of us, feel a little bit better. And on that note, that's all for us this weekend. Thank you so much. Hope you had a good weekend. Uh, thanks for reading and or listening to the newsletter. And uh, thanks to all of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers, especially those of you who are paid foreign exchanges subscribers. And I can't stress this enough. You are the guys who make this thing go. Guys and gals, excuse me, uh, who make this newsletter go. And I couldn't do it without you. So thanks for that. Uh, until next time, take care. And I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.